This short podcast series explores how drawing might help to manage the way that traumatic events are processed. I'm Tony Hull, and in this fifth episode, I'll be considering how my previous research has come to inform a programme of drawing exercise aimed at lessening some of the effects of trauma and stress. I'll be reporting back on a workshop I ran with a group of student midwives to test this proposition, offering a snapshot of the session before reflecting on their responses to it. This podcast series was made possible by an Arts Council England Project Award. bring your gaze back to the center of the paper that's the end of the warm-up so you're going to rub down the drawing spreading out the charcoal lines with the palm of your hand over the surface of the paper before we go on to do something with the objects on the table in front of you the idea is that as we proceed by leaving ghosts of prior drawings in place we'll come to accent the process rather than the final result okay so we're going to make a drawing that's about the experience of seeing. You need to think about how your gaze moves around the objects out there in front of you, while simultaneously mirroring this movement with your charcoal in one continuous line over the paper's surface. For this to be possible, you won't be able to look down at your drawing. So you want to place your charcoal on the paper, and thereafter, don't lift it off. Choose a place to begin and allow your gaze to wander, tracing its movement with your charcoal so that your hand and eye move in unison. The slower you proceed, the more effectively you'll be able to do this. And as your eye roams, there's no requirement to look around all of the still life. So if you find your gaze keeps coming back to the same thing, just let it go back there. Okay, let's make a start. Try not to think too much about the image that you are making. Instead, concentrate solely on how your gaze traces over what you see. Take your time and move your hand and eye in unison. Don't feel that you have to be a completist. If your eye gets tired of looking at one thing, it's keen to move on, let it do so. And try not to vary the weight of your mark either. So often there's a tendency to press less firmly in response to the eye's progression across the spaces between things. Don't. Try to keep it the same. This is a drawing about your eye's movement rather than a representation of what you're looking at. I think this idea of making a drawing that simply depicts your eye's progress is interesting because it takes a lot of the pressure off in that you're not trying to get a likeness. And what tends to happen because of this more relaxed approach is that this gets translated into your line. Okay, let's have a look at what you've done. What you'll probably find is that there is a suppleness to your marks, a feeling quality to what you've made. You might not recognize what's been depicted, but you can see that it has a kind of intent, a, a, a sort of purpose. All right, do you want to rub down your drawings to ghost them? And then we'll make another continuous line drawing like this. In your everyday looking, you don't close your eyes between objects. They, they stay open. 
It's true that the speed at which your gaze progresses changes, quickening as it flits between objects, but your eyes are open all the time. There are no breaks in your vision, and that's what you're trying to capture in this drawing. So never allow your eyes to leave the still life in front of you. The drawing will take care of itself. You need to pick a place to begin, and then slowly allow your eye to wander, mirroring its movement with the charcoal on the page. All right, let's start. Don't grip the charcoal too tightly. Keep your drawing hand relaxed and try to keep your eye moving at the same velocity, at the same speed. It'll give you a much better feel for the distance and the angle at which your gaze moves between objects. And connecting fully with the idea of not trying to make a representational drawing, simply charting your eye's progress, the line you make will become more and more relaxed, and this is likely to exert an effect on you. Drawing like this generally makes you more conscious of your gaze. That is, it makes you conscious of being conscious of the visual world in a way that can feel quite novel. Looking involves several individual moments of seeing, which are aggregated into a single image. But normally, you're not wholly aware of this. Also, normally when people draw, they observe and then record, observe and record, observe and record. So, there's this break in the way that the visual world is interrogated. The drawing that gets made is essentially a depiction of the memory of what was seen. Here, though, you may feel that you have less control over what you're depicting, but there's no break in your seeing. So you become increasingly aware of what your eyes are actually doing. I often work with drawing like this. There's something about not quite recognizing or categorizing what you see about almost choosing not really to engage with the content of vision. By focusing instead on the fit of things, that is how your eye threads together different elements of the visual world, you capture something of the experience of seeing itself. Working like this can make you feel very present because it places you very much in the here and now of seeing. And as it becomes more familiar, this way of working, you'll find that you're not really interested in where your eye has just been or where it might go. You'll focus solely on where it is now. It's like you trust that it will find a place, an opportunity to be drawn elsewhere. And this business of being in the moment, perceptually trying not to think beyond where you are now, can be really significant. It will often give you a space for other things to be reflected upon. Certainly, my experience has been that often quite tricky stuff can come to mind. And because you're drawing, you can deal with it in a way that you can't in your everyday life. Drawing can allow you to tolerate some of these things. And if it all gets too much, you just focus on the activity. What it gives you potentially is a kind of safe space, a, a place to hold your thoughts. Okay, again, do you want to have a look at what you've done? Notice how, even though you still haven't been looking at the paper, your drawings increasingly are starting to resemble the arrangement of the objects on the tabletop. By maintaining a more constant speed, the flow of your vision has been translated into a line with a common scale, so that the image, well, it feels more joined up. Again, let's wipe these back, and then we'll start another drawing. I'm going to take away some of the objects to make the distances between those that remain greater. You'll need to really concentrate on keeping your gaze moving at a constant speed because 
As the distances grow between objects, your eye's tendency to flip between them is increased. Okay, exactly the same proposition. Let's begin again. The slower your gaze proceeds around the still life, the more aware you will become of what your body is doing, whether you're drawing from your wrist or your elbow or perhaps your shoulder. And when you look at the world and make a record of your observations, what you see has an ever stronger relationship with your sense of touch. As the movement of your eye is reciprocated by that of your charcoal on the paper, it's a bit like touching something at a distance. And if you continue to make drawings like this, what becomes evident is how closely allied seeing is to touch. Touching, you join up the surfaces given to you through time to make an overall determination about what you might be holding. Likewise, with seeing there's a strong temporal element. Only because normally everything seems to be available to you all at once, because you're aware, always, of what is in your field of vision. This is less evident. But drawing, once you start to feel your gaze is almost touching the visual world in this way, you become much more conscious of how you actively engage the world with your eye and your body movements. And with this greater sense of being in the world, your body will have a heightened sense of presence. And with this will come an awareness of how your breathing has changed. Notice how it's become far deeper and slower. You all know the significance of that. And, 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 and this change is intrinsic to observational drawing, which is why you're probably feeling calmer now than when we started. In previous episodes, I've reflected on the drawings I made following my partner's paralysing accident and the impact of making them, the way that drawing helped me to manage my emotional response to our very difficult situation. They also detail some of the research undertaken that's given me a more theoretical grasp of what I felt empirically to have been happening as I made my drawings. And this knowledge has enabled me to begin to think more critically about how to devise a programme of drawing exercises that might enable people unfamiliar with the activity to benefit as I did. What you've just heard is the beginning of an hour-long drawing workshop where I trial some of my initial ideas about how such a drawing programme might be designed. Experience tells me that developing a long-term observational drawing practice has the potential to continually reshape how we make sense of the visual world. But here, the challenge was to distill habits of looking and recording, usually developed over a period, into a brief and accessible programme. The session was carried out with a group of student midwives, only one of whom had prior drawing experience. Increasingly, it's acknowledged that aspects of their training can be deeply stressful and traumatising, which is why, for example, Bart's Hospital in London have established a dedicated psychological support programme specifically for their student midwives. And so this felt like an inappropriate group to be testing these drawing exercises with. I began with a continuous line drawing. Its aim was essentially to make people more conscious of their gaze. And as the workshop proceeded, slowly the approach grew more reflective. 
ultimately touching on some of the more formal ways in which the eyes can be directed in response to the visual field to understand more fully the fit of things. I wanted the drawing exercises to elicit several quite distinct kinds of looking and ways of representing what was captured by vision, employing methods that would be simple enough to immediately follow, but also sufficiently immersive to alter the normal ways of engaging with the visual world and create something that would take participants outside of their everyday experience of seeing. I tried to take some of the things I'd found particularly helpful and to develop these into a set of proposals, as well as using my research to refine and repurpose introductory exercises I knew from experience could be transporting. I also wanted the routine to have a kind of flow for one way of looking and recording to lead seamlessly to the next, like a, like a prompt, so that were it to be repeated, a recognisable rhythm might start to emerge, marking the time in the way that would become part of the experience. Beyond that, I simply tried to teach in my usual way to promote a grasp and command of skills that might lead to understanding. So what did the group make of it? The first person to feedback said simply, I love that. I found it really relaxing. Then a second reported feeling exhausted, before a third commented, I didn't find it tiring at all, but, but really energising. All day today I've been feeling anxious, and that felt like it brought it into focus. It, it, it makes me feel like I can go back and reassess. The exhausted student then said that on reflection, the earlier stages of the workshop had been rather calming. I fully enjoyed the freedom of the first part, she said, but as I started to think, I need to make this more real, I started to find it tenser. I, I, I think that's why I felt so tired. I'm not a very precise person, added another, and it was nice to see that it didn't need to be immediately right. It was like I was working it out myself. I, it, it, it felt quite meditative. Like in the end, it didn't need to be perfect. It's like in the second part, you needed to have a bit of frustration and then keep working through it in that calm, slow way. Two interventions were then made that I find quite striking. The student who had reported being exhausted said, The other thing I noticed was how I was gradually focusing on things that had been troubling me recently. It was like a real crystallization of it. Suddenly, it was that stillness. I didn't know what had happened, more so perhaps at the end when I was getting a bit frustrated, weirdly. And then another added, yeah, at the end, I too was feeling more frustrated and anxious. I gradually came to interpret this as my underlying mood, like I'd been rushing past it, but this made me still enough to notice what my body and mind were doing. Actually, it was quite nice to get frustrated in that space because Often I get frustrated and I don't know where to put it. And it was great to have an outlet for it. In response to this, another participant added, Often there is so much emotion that just isn't appropriate for me to express in a way that I like to. I felt genuinely quite emotional doing that. She expanded on this idea of release and the coming and going of different thoughts. I like the way you said that if stuff comes to me, I can choose to let it go or stay with it. If you hadn't said that, I would have felt annoyed with myself for letting stuff in, like I'm meant to be focusing or meditating. 
I like the way it doesn't necessarily need to be one thing or the other. Your commentary seemed to give me permission for that to happen. Yes, the, the, the commentary was really important, interjected another member of the group. It gives your ear something to be doing, so you really stick with it. Yes, it, it, it really got me to focus, agreed another. And when there was silence, I felt more self-conscious. Next, the group contemplated how it might be to repeat these exercises. I could easily imagine doing the meditative bit on my own, said one member of the group. But now I'm wondering if there was something in everyone having focus, calm breath together that was quite therapeutic, that maybe we all have the same shared stress in our lives. We all tacitly know what everyone else is dealing with. Maybe there was a shared understanding. And from another, yeah, working in a group seemed to really help reduce the pressure. And I really enjoyed seeing other people's work too. In many respects, social interaction is assumed to be a key part of learning. It starts with the language acquisition that underpins cognition and continues through life with our interactions with those around us. Group learning is said to allow individuals to gain a deeper understanding through their engagement with peers, as small incremental developments animated by the shared sense of purpose. This certainly seemed to be a feature of this workshop, where although participants work mainly in silence, members of the group could see the drawings others had made alongside their own. So could this really be a standalone program that people could respond to individually? Well, there was an alternative response to the question about repeating the exercises. One student said that while she was undertaking the warm-up drawing, she began to imagine doing it in her breaks during particularly stressful shifts. She said it was so simple and generated such an immediate sense of calm. This actually resonated with something one of my fine art students recently shared with me. I taught her this continuous line blind drawing technique, i.e. not looking down at the paper, as a way for her to engage with a space she was researching without getting too caught up with its concept. Subsequently, she told me about a text she'd received from a friend having a panic attack. Texting back instructions about how to make this kind of drawing, her friend followed them recording the movement of her gaze on the back of an envelope with her pen. It caused her attack to subside. My fine art student had clearly found this kind of drawing meditation powerfully centering, which is why she'd instinctively suggested it to her friend. I wondered if in imagining undertaking the warm-up we'd just done during particularly difficult shifts, this proposed not only that newly learned drawing methods could be carried out alone almost immediately, but that additionally, there could be a real-time application for drawing in the management of stress that I hadn't anticipated. A suggestion was made that rather than being offered solely in printed format, the final workshop should be available with an audio commentary. It was felt that the spoken word element accompanying the drawing exercises had been intrinsic to the overall effect of the workshop. As a way of establishing a rhythm and pace of drawing, as well as encouraging a particular frame of mind, this struck me as a rather astute proposal. In teaching, we often talk about a student's need for self-actualization or fulfillment. In relation to drawing, this usually revolves around the desire to depict what is observed convincingly. It's why towards the end of the workshop, I began to focus on ways the gaze might be directed to achieve this. 
I wanted to understand whether the sense of achievement that this can bring might be a factor with drawing's ability to help with the management of stress. Should these more formal kinds of drawing observation ultimately be included? Fundamentally, the feedback suggests that the participants responded in different ways to the changing nature of the drawing exercises on offer. In the formative stages, reactions related in the main to drawing's ability to exert an effect on the autonomic nervous system, slowing down the breath to create changes in the body, generally experienced as a sense of calm, a bottom-up physiological process. Towards the end, as the methods employed to direct the gaze became more taxing and required more careful focus of cognitive resources, in many ways this seems to have had the effect of allowing thoughts and feelings previously subdued or unacknowledged to arise, be encountered and recognised, a top-down psychological process. Discussing this, the group made another important suggestion. Perhaps it might be interesting to create two different programs. The first, a meditative undertaking designed to offer a kind of therapeutic balm to alleviate some of the physical effects of stress and trauma. And a second, something that could provide a focus or context for difficult thoughts or feelings that might be tolerated as they competed for the cognitive resources needed to engage with more involved drawing exercises. Something for me to consider, though, I think, is whether the sequential nature of how different drawing approaches were encountered may have been a factor in the deeper responses people seem to have had to the second half of the workshop, i.e. did getting acquainted with an activity in the first part of the session allow more intense engagement in the second. So overall, I'm pleased with how these drawing exercises were received, and I probably need to take some time now to reflect. Reactions broadly coincided with my expectations, but in certain key respects, the feedback prompts me to consider some potentially significant revisions to what I had planned. Not just in terms of editing the content of these drawing exercises, but also potentially their structure as well. In time, I'd like to rehearse any changes I make with other groups to test and refine them. And I also want to give more thought to the possibility of an audio accompaniment and how this could relate to the way these drawing exercises are ultimately set out. I want to express my sincere gratitude to my first workshop attendees for their time and thoughtful feedback, which I think will materially affect both the content and format of any drawing offer that ultimately arises. In the final episode of this series, I will consider how, overall, my research has offered insights into my personal experience of drawing through trauma and assess the potential transferable benefits for others. Music